You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Let's pray together. My Father in heaven, it's no small thing to cover in a few minutes four chapters of your book of Revelation, of yourself and your ways to us. And yet, Father, this is a fitting passage to tackle together. You have something for us here in this amazing life of Joseph. And I pray that you would help us now as we come together as a church to hear from you, learn from you, have our hearts changed and our lives changed because of you and to represent you in our world. We come now in worship of your son in whose precious name we pray. Amen. The last book of the Bible called Revelation, tells about the end of history, tells about the second coming of Christ, and in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, we have this amazing statement about Jesus as there's this vision of the throne in heaven. Revelation 5.5 says, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And today, as we come back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we come to the climax of the story about Joseph. This is the last section of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50. And we come to the climax here, that text that Zach just read, the climax of the whole book of Genesis. Why is Jesus the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Have you ever thought about that question? We've been doing this Joseph story. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. Joseph has this amazing righteous life that points us to Jesus. Amen. Why Judah? Why would Jesus be the lion of the tribe of Judah? Judah and Joseph were brothers. Their father Jacob. And there were ten other brothers. Judah was Jacob's fourth son of his wife named Rachel, wife named Leah, sorry. Judah is from Leah. We learned about that in Genesis 29 and 30. And then Jacob's favorite son from his favorite wife, Rachel, is Joseph. And Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And because of this, Judah and his brothers envied Joseph, as we saw in Genesis 37, because their father had a special love for Joseph. And gave him this special coat. And then Joseph also had these dreams. And in Joseph's dreams, he saw his brothers bowing down to him someday. This didn't help with the brothers. The brothers came to envy him so much that they sold him into slavery and they gave their father Jacob the impression that Joseph was dead. But as we saw last week, even in slavery... God was with Joseph. He worked in the house of a man named Potiphar. And Joseph was so able in his work that Potiphar put him over his whole house. And then Potiphar's life, Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph. And Joseph went to prison. And then even in prison, God's favor was on him. Pretty soon they put him over the whole prison. And then two of Pharaoh's servants get sent into this prison. And they have dreams. And, Je and Joseph interprets their dreams. And then they go back 
And one of them is killed, and the other is restored to his place. And they say that they're going to remember Joseph. They're going to help him out. And they forget him <laughs> again. So chapter 41, verse 1, says this amazing phrase, after two whole years. It has been 11 years since Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Then he interprets the dream of Pharaoh's servants, and they forget about him two more years, two whole years, 11 years, then two more. Joseph goes down, 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 yet God's with him, but he's not being restored yet. He doesn't know where this is going. He's not sure of God's purposes in it. And as you wait on what God is doing right now in your time of going down, down, where is God? How's he helping me? You might want to consider where are you in the timeline of 13 years? God doesn't always answer our prayers after 13 seconds or 13 days or 13 weeks. Sometimes it's 13 years. So Joseph is the focus of chapters 37 to 50. And yet... One of the most surprising things about Joseph's life is that in this story about him, this has massive implications for God's people, for the whole history of Israel, for the eventual king of God's people. What happens in Joseph's life related to his brother Judah is of amazing importance. In fact, the climactic moment of the whole book of Genesis comes when Judah and Joseph stand face to face in that text that Zach just read for us. That's the end of chapter 44, the beginning of chapter 45. So that's where we're going to camp. We're going to set up that scene, move together through that scene, and think about the implications for us in our lives. So we come now to the climax of the Joseph story in the book of Genesis, but we do it through the lens of Judah. Maybe that would be something fresh we'd see here. Many of us are familiar with Joseph's story and Technicolor Dreamcoats and Prince of Egypt and movie and television have their versions of Joseph's story. But have we thought about Judah? And I want us to track with Judah here as the story of Joseph comes to its highest point this morning. So three things about Judah, three reflections on him. Number one, remember Judah's glaring flaws. You may remember these if you've been with us a few weeks. Remember his glaring flaws. Not only... Is Judah among the ten brothers who envy and plot against Joseph? But Judah is the one who recommends that the brothers sell him into slavery. In Genesis 37, the writer makes sure that we know Judah did the recommending. This is chapter 37, verses 26 to 27. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listen to him. So you could say, I mean, Judah does speak up so that they don't murder their brother. That's a good thing. But then he recommends, instead of coming to his brother's rescue, he recommends that they sell him into slavery for profit. This is not an honorable act. What profit is it if we kill our brother? Come, let's sell him. And Judah's word carries the day. And so the brothers sell him into slavery because of Judah's recommendation. And then chapter 38, which you saw a couple weeks ago. Chapter 38 chronicles Judah's downward moral spiral. In particular, 
related to his niece named Tamar. And it ends, chapter 38 ends, with Judah's admission of his wickedness and his hypocrisy. This is, this is rock bottom for Judah. Genesis 38 should tip us off that there's something important we should watch. We should keep an eye on Judah in this story about Joseph. To pay careful attention to him. Because all chapter 37 to 50, this is a whole section. This is the Joseph section. We talked a few weeks ago about how we, we ended the Jacob section. Now we're into the Joseph section. And in the Joseph section, there's the whole of chapter 38 about Judah. What? Like, why about Judah? This is Joseph's time in the spotlight. Why all this attention to Judah in chapter 38? That's because we need to watch for Judah. Here's two main reasons why chapter 38 comes in into this big story about Joseph. One is there's the immediate contrast in chapter 38 with Judah visiting a cult prostitute and Joseph in chapter 39 and 41 flourishing in Potter's house. And in particular, Joseph exhibits sterling character. He refuses the overtures of his master's wife. So the lives of Joseph and Judah are a stark contrast. These brothers are going two different directions. And then another reason for chapter 38 is to prepare us for what we see this morning in chapters 43 and 44 about Judah. So first, number one, remember Judah's glaring flaws. Number two, mark Judah's pledge of safety. This may be the most important phrase in our text this morning. Mark Judah's pledge of safety. In Genesis 42, Jacob, the father, sends his sons to Egypt to seek food during the famine. And Jacob recognizes his brothers. This is after 20 years. He recognizes his brothers. I'm not sure what to do. He sends them home with food, but he keeps their brother Simeon until they return with their younger brother Benjamin, who didn't come down with him. And Benjamin is Joseph's full brother. They were both born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And so Jacob wouldn't let Benjamin go down and risk going to Egypt. He kept Benjamin at home. The other ten brothers go. Jacob, J Joseph questions them about their family situation, and he holds Simeon in prison until the brothers come back with Benjamin because he wants to see his brother Benjamin. Once the food is gone for Jacob and his family, they, need, they want to go back. They want to go back and get some more food because of the famine from Egypt. But Joseph has said to them, don't come back unless you bring Benjamin. And so they're stuck. Jacob doesn't want to lose his other favorite son. But they're starving in a famine. They need to go back and get food. And so Judah steps forward. And this time it's in contrast with Reuben, the oldest son. Judah steps forward and offers a plan to go. Now, in the contrast this time, we saw in chapter 38 and 39, Judah, bad. Joseph, good, in the contrast. Now, Judah steps forward in a way that's in a contrast with Reuben, and Judah's way is commendable. So Reuben, he said to his father Joseph back in chapter 42, Father Jacob in chapter 42, he said, I'll take Benjamin down there to Egypt, trust him to me, and you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Jacob says, that's a terrible idea. 
why, if we lose my son Benjamin, why should we kill two of my grandchildren because of it? That's a terrible... No, you can't have my son, Reuben. I don't trust you, Reuben. That's in chapter 42. Then Judah steps up in chapter 43. And here's what he said. This is chapter 43, verses 8 to 9. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die because of the famine. Both we and you and also our little ones. Verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So Reuben's idea was horrible. And Judah's idea is honorable. I will be a pledge of his safety. I will bear the blame for him. Which I, I can't help but wonder if in the ears of their father Jacob, if he hears the words of his mother, Rebecca, back from chapter 27, verse 13, when she tells him to go in to get the blessing that God's promise is coming to the younger, not the older. He's worried. What if he gets found out? His father puts a curse on him for his trickery. And Rebecca says to him, let your curse be on me, my son. That's honorable. She puts herself on the line for her son. Let it be on me, my son. So Jacob agrees, and he entrusts Benjamin to Judah to go back to Egypt to get more food. And the brothers return to Egypt. They receive a special invitation to dine in Joseph's house. Benjamin gets five times the portions of the other brothers for the meal. And then they're sent home with more food. Where is the story going? It's so crazy. Coming down, getting food, sending them off. Joseph's keeping himself a secret. But then Joseph sends an Egyptian to catch them from behind because someone, he says, has stolen Joseph's silver cup. And this cup has been planted by Joseph in Benjamin's pack. And two important questions. I think these are the two most confusing details in this section of the story. Number one, why does Joseph give Benjamin five times the portions of his brothers? And second... Why does he hide the silver cup in Benjamin's bag? Like, on the one hand, it seems he's given special privileges to Benjamin. And then he hides an item that's going to be called stolen in Benjamin's bag. What is going on here? And the two questions come together in one answer. Joseph is testing his brothers. He's setting up a test. Benjamin, who's the only other son of the favorite wife, Rachel is now Jacob's favorite son. And he gets favored treatment in Egypt as well. Will the brothers envy and mistreat Benjamin just like they did to Joseph 20 years prior? And since these silver cups are used in the ancient world for trying to tell the future, to see into the future... Would the brothers think that Benjamin's trying to set himself up like Joseph to be a dreamer? To be the one who sees ahead into the future? That's why he stole the silver cup, perhaps? What's happening is that Joseph is setting up Benjamin as a kind of new Joseph to see how the brothers are going to respond 
Will they abandon Benjamin just like they abandoned Joseph 20 years before? And now we come to the passage that Zach read, the end of chapter 44, beginning of chapter 45. And it's a small detail, but it is so significant. Look at verse 14. Chapter 44, verse 14, Judah and his brothers. The story is letting us know. This is about Judah. Keep your eye on Judah. Something's about to happen here with Judah, not just the brothers in general. This is Judah and his brothers come back to Egypt for this, to face the music with Joseph. The brothers come face to face with Joseph, and Judah steps forward, and he gives the longest speech in the book of Genesis. Genesis is a narrative story. It's not a long speech. You got to hear the longest speech in the book of Genesis there, as Zach read it. It's the longest speech in Genesis. This is the climax of the Joseph story, the climax of the book of Genesis. And at the end, he says, this is, verses four, this, this is chapter 44, verses 32 and 33. Judah says to Joseph, I became a pledge of safety for the boy, for Benjamin, to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame for him before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant, let me, Judah says, let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah is willing to put himself into slavery instead of abandoning his brother into slavery as they had done 20 years before with Joseph. And Judah's speech and his readiness to sacrifice himself is what breaks the spell, so to speak, with Joseph. This is when Joseph finally can't handle it anymore and he's got to reveal himself to his brothers. They passed the test and now he's going to reveal himself. It's chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. I think this is one of the most dramatic, emotional moments in all the Bible. Joseph reveals himself. I am Joseph. And his brothers are scared to death. He's the Lord over all Egypt. They sold the Lord of all Egypt into slavery 20 years ago. And now he's saying, hello, <laughs> Brother Joseph. They're scared to death. But he comforts his brothers. This is amazing. This is so significant. Please don't miss this. He comforts his brothers by reflecting on the purposes of God in their evil. Let me read for you chapter 45, verses 4 to 9. If you got the Bible open there for you, look at verses 4 to 9. Watch the God-centeredness with which Joseph handles this. Joseph's a victim. Watch how he brings God into the situation with his brothers. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For... God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you. That's the second time. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. That's three. 
He, four, he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God made me lord of all Egypt. Joseph is amazingly God-centered. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me. He made me a father to Pharaoh. God made me lord of all Egypt. It was not you who sent me here, but God. But God meant it for good. How might it change us when we feel like victims to see God's work in it and through it for our good and the good of others? God's purposes in the selling of Joseph into slavery do not mean that the brothers' actions weren't wicked and evil. They were evil. What you meant for evil, Joseph says. And yet, even in evil, often we feel it especially so in evil. As we've seen throughout the book of Genesis, God is in control, bringing about his good purposes. Human sin and evil cannot stymie his purposes for good. But wonder upon wonder, he takes the very evil, the very actions, the very intentions of evil man, and not just despite them, but through them, he brings about his saving purposes and intentions for his people. We've seen it over and over. Adam's sin, Abraham's sin, Isaac's sin, Jacob's sin, Laban's sin, Judah's sin, the brother's sin. He's working it for good. That's how the the storyline of Genesis has turned on God taking sin and evil and working it for good. So Joseph comforts his distressed brothers by assuring them that he sees what God is doing for good when they intended it for evil. And because of his God-centeredness, he is able to genuinely forgive their evil intentions and sins against him. And Judah, Judah being the one who steps forward and offering himself in Benjamin's place, passes Joseph's test. Judah's pledge of safety and Judah's readiness to bear Benjamin's blame demonstrates love instead of envy. And it shows Joseph that he and his brothers have changed. It is not the same as 20 years ago. He's not going to throw his brother under the bus and get away scot-free himself. Given the chance to dispense with their father's favorite son, as they did with Joseph, Judah offers himself as a substitute. This then leads to Judah's legacy. That's our final point. So number one, remember Judah's glaring flaws. Second, mark his pledge of safety. And then third and finally, Marvel at Judah's stunning legacy. Marvel at Judah's stunning legacy. When their father Jacob comes to the end of his life, chapter 49, and he blesses his 12 sons, he says that the kingship in Israel, Israel's going to be the name of the nation, named after their father, the name of the nation that's coming from these 12 tribes, the kingship in Israel will belong to 
to Judah. It's chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter, that's the king's, king's scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of all the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So as Judah became a pledge of safety for his younger, youngest brother Benjamin, so the king in Israel should be a pledge of safety for his brothers and sisters. As Judah came to offer himself to free his brother rather than enslave him, so God means for his leaders to embrace the cost, embrace the inconvenience, embrace the personal loss of comfort and private joy for the greater joy of meeting others' needs. God means for those who lead his people, whether it's pastors or husbands or fathers or teachers or influential figures, not to use others or domineer over them, but to lift others up and serve them. To sacrifice for others rather than be selfish. To use our God-given strength and energy and resources and finances and influence to help others, not to hurt them. This is the legacy of Judah. Not exploiting others, but sacrificing ourselves for others. Not pushing others down, but lifting them up. Not using power to hurt others, but to help them. This is the kind of man that God wants to be king over his people and leaders in society and pastors in churches and husbands and fathers. The legacy of Judah, of course, is not just for men, but women also. But ladies, if you would... Allow me a word as a man with my fellow men. You don't have to close your ears. It's good for you to hear this. This is for the men. Brothers, God has put two Judas before us this morning. A Judah in chapter 38 and a Judah in chapter 44. The Judah of chapter 38 is one whose words cannot be trusted and whose morality is compromised, and who wields his authority to hurt others. And God gives us a new picture of Judah in chapter 44, who puts himself at risk to protect others, whose word is as good as gold, and who stands ready to sacrifice himself for the good of others. Brothers, this is what God is calling us to in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in this church, that we would become what Judah became, no matter how pathetic we started. That's the same Judah in chapter 38. There was a changed life to chapter 44. Part of the legacy of Judah is the power of a changed life and how God changes us. 
No matter how bad your start, brothers, there is a chance for change. To become men who sacrificially give ourselves for the sake of others. Men who joyfully sacrifice our own time, our own comforts, our own finances, our own energy to do the hard work of leading, providing for, and protecting others. Men, there are few visions of manhood more pathetic than chapter 38. And there are few visions more glorious than chapter 44. And it's the same man that God changed. Brothers, God made you for this. And you will feel so alive as a man when you press past your laziness, past your fears, past your selfishness to protect others rather than self. To put yourself on the line as a pledge of safety for others. But this is such good news. The legacy of Judah is more than simply a call for us to be pledges of safety for others. The reason that we can have hope, brothers and sisters now, the reason we can have hope despite our glaring flaws, and the reason that we can step forward to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others is because we ourselves have a pledge of safety for us. There is only one king and only one man who perfectly embodies the legacy of Judah. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the table, picture Jesus himself turning to his father and saying this about you. So Jesus to his father says this about you. I will be a pledge of his safety. I will be a pledge of her safety. Father, I will not come back without her. I will not come back without him. I will bear the blame for him. And Jesus came and he offered himself in your place as your substitute. And what enables us to be the kind of people who would be pledges of safety for others is that first and foremost, we have Jesus as our pledge of safety. So when it gets hard, it's going to get hard. And when you feel weak, and you know you're going to feel weak, and when it feels like it's more than you can bear to look out for others and not just self, we have a lion to lean on. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who has conquered. He will hold you fast. He will keep you safe. And he will bring you home to his father. So let me ask the brothers to come. Worship leaders as well. One of the reasons that we have our pastors joined by our deacons to distribute these elements to you week after week is because we're saying we're here to serve you. 
We're not here to use you. We're not here to domineer over you. We are here to serve you. And we want to show you every week in distributing the elements that we're here to serve you. We want to be like the legacy of Judah. And so we'll distribute the bread, we'll retain it, hold it together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.